0: The Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on Progressive Radio Network. P R N dot F M. Mondays at 10 a.m. But that's oh we're global. 10 a.m. if you're in East Coast United States. I recall years ago I was in Bali. <laughs> and uh, I would I would go to this community. I went to the remote part of the island. we go to this communications place that had some satellite or slink or something and I could call New York and at 9 o'clock at night I'd make a phone call. It would be 9 o'clock in the morning in New York. So that was halfway around the world. So if you're halfway around the world, we might be some other time. But it's 10 a.m. 10 a.m. in New York and you'll find our back shows on visionaries podbean, p P-O-D-B-E-A, o d b e a, Amazon Mary dot com and uh, we've got some terrific back shows, we've got great new shows coming up and I want to talk today about movies I've been talking about movies previously and anybody out there, movie buffs want to call in 888-874-4888 so call ins welcome 888 874 4888 and I was in Florida lecturing got stuck there we had a big storm up north and I spent an extra few days and saw a couple of movies. It was, I, you know, used to go to quite a few movies. It's not so much recently. So I have to confess, this is my first time in one of these new movie theaters that have these um, Barker loungers. (laughs) You you get this great uh, seating arrangement, you know, it tilts back and I guess there are less people in the theater, so well, with your big flat screen at home so they can give you more space. Prices were reasonable in Florida. I don't know what they are in New York for these uh, new sitting arrangements. But I saw Logan and Kong, Skull Island. So Logan led me to think about this issue and what are our movies saying about us? Why are we attracted to certain movies? So Logan is, of course, a uh uh Wolverine from X-Men and X-Men is a Marvel franchise which we uh differentiate from DC and if you go right now you know you there's it's DC is giving us Batman and uh Superman that really stupid recent movie Batman versus Superman what a uh, talk about jumping the shark, right? I mean, what's supposed to be this uh, conflict between these two figures, you know, turns out and then they throw some monster in there that they have to cooperate to fight the monster, and suddenly Wonder Woman shows up. I mean, it's like, give me a break. But, so some of these go off the rails. But, so we, you know, we ask ourselves, well, what do these mean? If you go way back... With Marvel and DC, you recall how Marvel came along with these, shall we say, uh, awkward adolescence, and so we get figures like uh, Spider-Man is this you know teenager who doesn't fit in uh, into his world, and uh, X-Men is of course. Mutants, and then you wonder, you know why does this work and obviously it works because all kids think they 're mutants <laughs> you know kids kids feel they don 't fit in one of the well, I recall from the second wave feminism in the 1960s they started having uh, what we we would call consciousness raising groups. So women would get together and talk about, you know, anything. But it was mostly about how they felt, oh, abused, marginalized, didn't fit in, whatever, growing up. And the complaint was typically that, you know, there were always these girls who had perfect hair and expensive clothes and uh, seemed to be the in-group, and then the other girls felt, we don't fit in and so when you get to the get to the consciousness raising group the women who had been the girls with the perfect hair and the expensive clothes that yeah we we felt we didn't fit in either everybody felt that way so everybody feels you know this sympathy for uh uh the relate to uh, the mutants in the X-Men franchise so our favorite mutant is of course Wolverine and spoiler alert you know I'll go a little bit into what's going on here but basically we get to a new generation of new generation of mutants or X-Men as the old ones die off, and I guess <laughs> Hugh Jackman said, I'm tired of this, is my guess. And the studio said, you know, how do, we, what, what do we do next? How do, we, how are we going to handle this? So, um, in the movie, the, uh, well, I looked it up on Wikipedia and I'm told that it's the 10th installment of the X-Men film series. And, I don't know, the 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 originals had a kind of shiny science fictiony cinema, cinema cinematic quality to them. This one's much darker. Uh, this is much it's more of a road movie, um, and so we're you know we're on the road. There's a lot of dust. We're at the border between Texas and uh, Texas and Mexico, and then we head up toward we head up north in our in our beat up old cars. A shiny new car, but it's pretty soon beat up and full of bullet holes. And we meet this girl. Uh, So um, Wolverine is uh, his typical recalcitrant. He's working. He's dying. He's got adamantium in him or whatever from, you know, I guess you'd know about that. If you follow the previous movies, and he is stuck with this eleven-year-old girl, Laura. That you know, someone tries to hire him to uh, take up north, and so next thing she's with them. And turns out, who is she? She's been specially bred from genetic material that came from. Wolverine—it's his daughter, (laughs) not through a natural uh, sexual act, but uh, through DNA manipulation, et cetera, and. Uh, we get some Lamarckianism here, remember? (laughs) Acquired characteristics are not supposed to be inherited. So Wolverine was not born with those blades between his, between his knuckles. He was, uh, those were implanted in him. So they shouldn't be in his DNA, but somehow this girl who's bred from his DNA, uh, you know she's uh she's she's a lot like him, you know <laughs> like real recalcitrant, really quiet you know uh moody and doesn't want to be bothered and when she is out from her knuckles come <laughs> and she takes down the uh the bad guys from the government and the and the agency and their automatic weapons and all that, and uh she joins him in slicing them up. Well, anyway, uh, so what you know? Wh- why why do we relate to this movie? So I like to think about movies mythologically, and I'm a big uh, fan of Joseph Campbell. Was fortunate in the 19 when was it 1970s? Joseph Campbell retired from teaching at Sarah Lawrence and started lecturing at a loft in Manhattan and I found out about this through, <laughs> this is before the internet, right, so how do you find out things <laughs> through the grapevine and uh, so I started going and there were these unbelievable lectures he would do Friday evening, all day Saturday, Sunday morning and then there would be a six foot sandwich lunch at noon on uh, Sunday, or midday Sunday. And he would do these various topics, the Arthurian romances, India, um, China, the Buddhism, um, James Joyce, modern art, Picasso, and I just totally related to this material. This is This is the way I saw things, and I had found something very important to me, so I went regularly over the over the years, and then Campbell selected me to be one of the one of the initial uh, advisory board members for his literary estate, so I was very flattered and worked on worked on um, worked on the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Uh, if you caught it, great. We had the director of the foundation on a while back, a couple months ago. And if you didn't catch it, go to visionaries.podbeam.com, and you can find the back show. It's, um, it's Bob Walter, uh, director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. We talk about Campbell and what the foundation does, and you can get audio tapes and even videotapes of Campbell speaking. If you haven't seen it, uh, the place to start with Joseph Campbell is Bill Moyers on public television did six interviews with Campbell. Well, he did hundreds, dozens and dozens of hours, but it was reduced to six one-hour PBS TV shows, which is readily available on, on uh, I guess, uh, Amazon as, as videos. But <clears throat> I haven't checked. They may also be pirated onto YouTube, and you can just watch them there. So go look for them. So that's where to start if you're interested in that. But with that background, I would run into things like uh, see a movie like Clint Eastwood's In the Line of Fire and Clint Eastwood plays a Secret Service agent who's in the wasteland. So he had been on the bumper of JFK's car and failed, he froze, and failed to jump to take the second bullet. And so he's the only living, (laughs) the only living Secret Service agent who lost a president. And he's working counterfeiting, which is in the wasteland. And he... Something comes up, as a threat on the current president, he's pulled back into the action, and saves the day. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, this is the Parsifal myth. I mean, it's straight like somebody just took Parsifal and the uh, Fisher King. And translated it into a contemporary movie, and then you see how you know movies are these mythological structures, and there's some that are really obvious. So you know the an obvious one is the natural uh, that baseball movie with Robert Redford, and so years ago I'm uh, hanging out with George Lucas. where we're going we're I go, we had. Been there when he was filming American Graffiti, standing, standing on the, standing on the uh, curb. Maybe get picked up in one of the shots. I don't know, but you know, as the hot rods, uh, the fifties cars are going by, and in suburban Los Angeles, and so then you know we go over to his house and. And it, I'm over there, and he's got all these Ravel models of rocket ships and stuff. I said, George, what are you working on? He says, uh, Star Wars. I said, what's that? He's, well, it's swords and ray guns. <laughs> so I'm there, you know, the opening of the movie in New York, and uh, <laughs> the. The uh, scroll comes across the screen in a galaxy far, far away, long, long ago, or however it begins, and and everybody in the theater immediately knew this was within, you know, 10 seconds, this was a new franchise. But I'm watching the movie, and oh, my God, it's straight out of Joseph Campbell's, the Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's the hero journey, right? Uh, separation from ordinary reality, journey to a realm of fabulous forces where a decisive victory is won and a return to enrich the world. So, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker is on the farm. You see him dreamily looking up at the twin suns and, you know, wishing he were off having space adventures. And then the... Uh, inciting moment, the Inception, right, where he unlocks uh, R2-D2 and out comes a hologram. Obi-Wan, help me. Obi-Wan, help me. Oh, I wonder if that's old Ben. And we're off to adventure. Right? And um, uh, we're off to uh, space uh, space technologies and then he destroys the Death Star, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well... Um, so we see these uh, mythic structures in movies. And when I was working on the Campbell Foundation, I encountered uh, a guy named John David Ebert, uh, quite young, just out of college. And he gave a talk at a foundation, sort of a closed foundation meeting. And he described how, in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now!, uh, which, okay, so we know that comes from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And so we have Journey Up the River, so uh, separation from ordinary reality. And then the fabulous things they encounter. I uh, love the enhanced uh, Apocalypse now added to. <laughs> I forget the name of it. Uh, but there's the latest version where a couple of puts back a lot of things that had to be cut to make it of a manageable length. Including the really incredible Playboy scene, but anyway, the you know which adds to the insanity of the whole thing. And so when our hero, our assassin, our CIA assassin, his name I'm not remembering, encounters Marlon Brando, who's Kurtz, you know, who's the one who has to he has to take out, and Marlon Brando was reading from. Uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And while he's reading, and of course, Eliot, among other references, used Fraser's The Golden Bough and Jesse West's From Myth to Ritual for sources for The Wasteland. And we see those two books on Brando's desk uh, while he's reading. And The uh, Golden Bough opens with the... Mesopotamian kings who are every seven years are sacrificed so you become a king and then <laughs> you get sacrificed uh, and there's a new king and then there's a point where some king says hey I got an idea why, why don't we sacrifice a bull instead <laughs> and it's right at the moment where the assassin uh, kills Brando it cuts to the natives beheading a bull so Copeland knew what he was doing uh, in uh, in structuring this movie. So I was blown away by John David Ebert and his these uh, insights that he had. And eventually, I've been wondering, with the inception of the internet, which is recent for people my age, uh, why why isn't there a website where there's intelligent discussion of the movies? No relation, but. Uh, Roger Ebert, you know, was a, a really intelligent film critic, as was Pauline Kael. But other than that, who do we really appreciate as film critics who, you know, talk intelligently about these things? Why can't we have a website that does that? I mean, even if there's only what you know, a few people here and there. Uh, too few and too scattered for a magazine or a newspaper, but that's supposed to be the point of the internet. So, I got together with Ebert, and we started a website, cinemadiscourse.com. It was <laughs> really stupid name, right? Uh, I mean, talk about making it too intellectual. Uh, Cinema Discourse, but, you know, all the all the really good, obvious names were not available, so we ended up with that one. And <clears throat> We did really well for a long time. We haven't done anything for about a year. But if you go there, the the older reviews are really incredible, and the the um, uh, some of the sort of background text. And I'll go through some of it. One of the things is we have a list of Ebert's dozen most important visionary movies. That's interesting. We use the term visionary movies, and uh, this show is visionaries. Anyway, and my book is Visionary Creativity, my recent book, which you can find on Amazon. So I'm thinking about, okay, what, what do these movies tell us? What do they say about who and what we are? And some years ago, I was at a party chatting with Margot Adler, Now, if you're an alternative radio buff, fan, whatever, and you listen to PRN, you might also listen to WBAI, because Gary and all is on both. And you might remember Margot Adler. More recently, you'll remember her as a correspondent on National Public Radio. And she would report on very interesting, different stories. But if you remember way back... In 1972 on WBAI, she created a talk show called The Hour of the Wolf. And she had the most incredible, soothing voice. You know, it's like, this is someone I should know. Uh, And, you know, finally my, my late wife was involved in various feminist stuff and got to know Margot Adler and I got to know her. So I met her. Didn't look like what I had pictured, but anyway, uh, really terrific person. <clears throat> and she left BAI and went on to went on to uh, National Public Radio. And then in 1979, she did a book, Drawing Down the Moon. So she was a a Wicca. <laughs> she was a witch. Uh, gee, that sounds derogatory, doesn't it? But anyway, she was a real witch. That was her thing. She was into Wicca. Which is modern witchcraft, and she'd be with you know these groups of women who were witches, and they'd do witch rituals, and she wrote a book about it, "Drawing Down the Moon," which sort of surveys contemporary witch witches. So it's 1979, a while back. But if you're interested in this and spiritual feminism, and which is what my late wife was into, and so um, um, you know, got to know her. It's Drawing Down the Moon. But I bumped into her at, uh, at an event, and uh, just for reference, she died in uh, 2014. And just uh, the year she died, she published a book called Vampires Are Us. So I'm chatting with her at this party, and I said, so Margot, what are you up to? And she says, well, I've been into vampires. And I said, Okay, what's what's that? And she said, "Why the fascination with vampires?" And now, uh, since then, we've gotten a bit more into zombies than vampires. We'll get to that in a minute. But so, what is this with vampires? And we have you know the Twilight series and all that. I remember. Being in a bookstore, and there are these really thick, you know, like bricks of books with black covers, and there's a whole bunch of them, and they all the Twilight series. of what is that? And you know, i I'm so. And of course, then the movies came out. So since it's, <laughs> I'm, I don't read. You know, if it's on, if it's on audio, I'll listen to it. But reading a book is sitting, actually reading a book when I could be watching a rerun of uh, Big Bang Theory. It's kind of difficult. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, so there are all these vampire movies. Why? Why this fascinating vampires? <laughs> so she said, uh, "I'll give you. I'll give you the bottom line." vampires are predators who are trying to be human which is us (laughs) we're predators who are trying to be human so that's why we identify with vampires so that explains vampires I still haven't read the book I gotta read the book Uh, but so and then you wonder okay so more recently it's been zombies hmm what's the zombie thing Why so fascinated with zombies? Well, we would all love to, well, many of us would love to be vampires, right? They're immortal, they're cool, they're um, confident, um, they stride through history, (laughs) you know, they go out at night, (laughs) so vampires are cool. Zombies are not cool. (laughs) They're pretty ugly. Uh, There's nothing admirable about being a zombie. So why the fascination with zombies? And I think it's, you know, we don't want to be the zombie, but we fear them. And so we have this sense of being invaded. So if we feel our culture's being invaded, however, whoever we are and however we identify our culture, we feel... Somebody's threatening it. And, well, that's zombies. You know, people who are, by our standards, unthinking, uh, destructive, uh, contribute nothing, only destroy, um, that's zombies. And so the fascination, you know, that Walking Dead being even for... Even though it's on cable, you know, like a uh, number one in a lot of different ways of ranking television series uh, and of course, the Walking Dead does a great job of okay, we don't identify with the zombies, but how which of the survivor groups do we identify with <laughs> What do you do when you've eaten all the canned tuna fish from the grocery stores? <laughs> You got You got to. How do you recreate civilization? You know, and then there are farmers and there are raiders, and you oh, that's how that's hum- how humanity began. You know, you start getting all these settled Neolithic farms uh, uh, following the hunter gatherers, and next thing you know, coming out of the steppes of Russia are the um, Bronze Age warrior chieftains. That come out and have these a triumvirate of gods and a triumvirate of figures, so they have these ballads, they are into magic mushrooms, they have horse drawn war chariots, and they come out and spread from the steppes of Russia uh, south and then east down into India and then south and swing up north all the way up into Scandinavia and bringing their gods with them so that uh, it, uh, we, we were aware of Zeus, this thunder-wielding uh, king of the gods. Well, um, Indra in India and Thor in in um, in Scandinavia, <clears> the <throat> same god, just different names because it's the same people. These Indo-Europeans uh, invading on the farming cultures. Well, so that's sort of in our DNA, this conflict, and The Walking Dead recreates that in these different cultures that are trying to reestablish some type of humanity among uh, the conflicts among each other, which are raiders, which are warriors, which are peaceful, uh, etc. So then, you know, we wonder, and of course we can see in Logan, as being part of uh, the X-Men franchise, how young people uh, easily identify as being outsiders, mutants, don't fit in. And so apparently even the kids who do fit in, (laughs) Uh, you know, feel underneath that they don't fit in. So, you know, that's probably the appeal of the... uh, of the Marvel comic series. You know, Spider-Man is uh, not someone who's confident and fits in, even though he's able to become uh, a a spider. So uh, I recommend our website, Cinema Discourse. Again, apologies for It's not being kept up, but the back stuff is incredible. And I thought I'd look through... uh, Ebert put up a list of his most important visionary movies since the 60s. And so he's got them in, um, you know, usually you go from 12 12 to 1, but he goes from 1 to 12. So number one is, of course, (laughs) 2001, A Space Odyssey, without a doubt. The single most important visionary movie ever made. And um, and then he says, you know, part of the reason is that if this movie hadn't been made, there wouldn't even be the category. And I remember when the movie came out, you know, it was just, uh, you were all blown away by it. And the other than Forbidden Planet, it was the first serious science fiction movie. The, the rest just were. Lame. <laughs> I mean, might as well have been um, Flash Gordon f- fighting the evil Emperor Ming or something like that for what they were doing. But suddenly, uh, it's at the at the same time. Technologically realistic, right? We're up there at the space station, which rotated. <laughs> we still haven't built them that way yet. But the reason why it rotates is it gives you artificial gravity. Uh, to this day, astronauts get into trouble for spending time in gravity-free, you know, too much time in gravity-free environment. And we're still worried, you know, if people going to make it to Mars, or are their bones going to disintegrate from lack of uh, lack of being exposed to gravity. Well, Kubrick did it with Arthur C. Clarke, and it's this, you know, mythological mythological uh, movie. Now, it takes an interesting mythological position, and there are two two ways to see humanity that spirit comes from within and it comes from without so in the biblical tradition god makes human man adam of clay and the clay is dead and then god breathes the spirit uh, the spark of spirit into the clay and and animates it so spirit comes from without And in the Eastern tradition, human beings are natural creatures, and spirit is in all things. So human, spirit, and nature are one integrated thing. Spirit is not something separate that comes from without. So if you look at a movie like Princess Monocle, and you see how all these, you know, Shinto spirit creatures are have been reimagined in, in the, the movies in those animated series. So, uh, where do we come from? And 2001 A Space Odyssey takes the position that spirit comes from without. So, opening scene is these ape uh, hominid ancestors and suddenly among them is this um, the uh, monolith dum-dum-dum and then they touch it and comes the spark of you know human intelligence uh, human nature comes from that and where did the monolith came, come from? Well it was left by some other civilization and so now we go to the moon no we, well, I, we're going to the moons of uh, Jupiter because uh, that's where excuse me, after they find a monolith on the moon. We now get a signal from Jupiter. So the journey is going there. And of course, then Hal goes berserk. The computer goes out of control, kills everybody except our hero who survives the trip. And now, what is it like to encounter this, what is it, uh, this... Other worldly intelligence, a civilization that's perhaps now welcoming us. And Clark and Kubrick do a a good idea, you know, there's a light show, but then, you know, this, you know, it's a way of uh, what's it going to be like? What does this mean? So that's um, Ebert's first pick. Next is Jaws. And uh, which he refers to as Spielberg's first great movie. And he calls it a democratization of Moby Dick, in which the heroic epic-style action scenes have been brought to the foreground. And I guess, yeah, it does make Moby Dick more accessible. The uh, I mean, the shark is pretty fierce, but at least it's... <laughs> if we had a bigger boat, <laughs> we need a bigger boat. Uh but it's you know the whale is uh, almost transcendent and but the shark is uh the shark is encounterable and defeatable. So Spielberg inaugurated a new epic of monster movies which followed, including Alien, uh, Piranha, Gremlins and um anaconda like placid species etc all come from all come from jaws and you get a sense of this in in alien in which we're sort of drawn between is the alien queen evil or just a force of nature you know you have um she she buries her eggs in uh, humans that that then devours them from inside before bursting forth well, there are wasps that do that you know that that bury their eggs in a tarantula and then drag the tarantula into a hole and and dig a hole and bury the tarantula in it, and the eggs grow up eating the living tarantula as they mature um pretty ugly stuff, but is it evil or is that just nature? You know, I mean, <laughs> we eat hamburgers, some people, and the experience of the cow to become the hamburger is not that pleasant. So, um, you know, is, is the shark evil or is it just the shark? That's what sharks do. For number three, Hebert chooses um, Star Wars. And he says, this is the second movie after Kubrick's 2001 that involves the director's conscious application of mythology towards the creation of a modern myth. And uh, Lucas, as he puts it, set out to create a fairy tale for 12-year-olds and in the process scaled down and miniaturized the entire history of pulp cinema and comic books. The movie is lo- loaded with visual quotations from the popular culture of the 30s, 40s, 50s, from Flash Gordon comic strips to Isaac Asimov's Foundation novels through Frank Herbert's Dune. So we think of... Uh, there's a, a set of books called Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and it's two monster volumes. And so if a Chinese kid is going to be under the covers with a flashlight reading, you know, when they're supposed to be asleep um traditionally that 's what they 'll be re- reading Romance and the three kingdoms and in it there's empires and foundations and uh, collapses of empires and births of new empires and uh, that 's lucas 's source that's you know that 's what 's going on in these movies and you also see how he draws upon the uh, Hong Kong Chinese action movies, the um, the the sword movies, and there was um, uh, the the greatest sword movie that sort of gives birth to the modern Chinese movies is Come Drink with Me, and in it the and. St- student an evil student of the master has you know killed the master and stolen his staff and is taking over and so a warrior woman warrior has to set out to to uh <laughs> to stop the the evil As she picks up this monk they go to there they go to the monk's uh, master, and so there's this old master sitting in this beautiful, you know, Chinese fantasy hut with a waterfall in the back, and he's practicing his tai chi. And you see, you press his hand outward, starting the waterfall, stopping the waterfall, and so you get. Um, that sort of recalled my my Tai Chi studies with Professor Chen, although we couldn't start and stop waterfalls across the room but but you know that's the mental discipline so these um and it was that was an interesting story that movie because it disappeared, and I saw it in the theaters and before videos were popular, this was in the seventies and Later, there were videos, so I you know, start looking for it. You can't find it, and so then I would go to you. Know, when you're in Chinatown, they'll be they'll, they'll sell videos, and a lot of them will be Chinese videos. And so I go upstairs to the back where they have the videos, and I said, "Do you have this movie? Come drink with me." And they always said, "No." And I, you know, maybe it's got some other title. What's the title in Chinese? I don't know, and. Later, the story came out that there was a dispute between the director and the studio, and the movie had been locked up for like 30 years. And then it came out. So I immediately got it, and we watched it. And it's pretty good. It's not as good as it originally was, but all those movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and stuff like that all come from this movie. It's credited as being the origin of these great great current Chinese warrior, typically warrior woman uh, movies, and then even things like Kill Bill come from this tradition. So, you know, those are the origins of these movies that we're still embedded in. And, of course, I guess we're reasonably happy with what uh, Disney is doing with Star Wars. And Lucas wasn't doing anything with them. And we weren't too happy with his uh, <laughs> his uh, final versions. So now it's, it's a new franchise. And I'm a big Peter Thiel fan. And at one point, Peter Thiel says... He talks about uh, the, the crowd, the, the group with whom he started PayPal, which was the origin of his first fortune. So he's now a venture capitalist. He's famous for having initially funded Facebook. So <laughs> for $500,000, he got 20% of Facebook. So, uh, so he, now he's a venture capitalist. And I strongly recommend his book uh, from one from zero, what is it from zero to one, and uh, easier than the book. Just go to YouTube, put in Peter Thiel. There's some great talks, very insightful. But there's this quote in the book where he says the the group at the group at PayPal preferred the capitalist Star Wars to the communist Star Trek. So anyway, (laughs) there are Star Wars fans and Star Trek fans. Uh, I think I relate a little more to Star Wars. Star Trek is always about somebody who was abused as an adolescent and then as a result builds a planet-sized death machine with which single-handedly somehow he has a pretty big toolbox. He builds this planet-sized space ship that's going to destroy everything and Captain Kirk has to do him in in a fist fight. <laughs> How often are we going to run that stupid formula? But anyway, um, at least uh, uh, even the the first Disney Star Wars was a little kind of full of quotes, but you know the second one is maybe a little more original. Speaking of quotes, I mentioned I saw Kong, Skull Island, and a lot of quotes of Apocalypse Now there. So it takes place during the Vietnam era, and what happens is that satellites have revealed this island. Now, how can there be a lost island right in the the 1970s, but totally enclosed in storms? So it hadn't been seen. And satellites reveal this island, and John Goodman persuades a congressman to give them the backing to uh, go there, because if we don't go there first, the Russians will go there first. So, okay, so they go, and they arrive with a dozen helicopters. And these, these are all—we're we're leaving Vietnam anyway, so we have the troops, we have the helicopters— Well, Kong is a lot bigger than the previous movies. I have to give it some thought, but I would say maybe 500 feet, you know. (laughs) And uh, he just swats down the helicopters. (laughs) So now a few survivors are straggling on the island. And, of course, it turns out that Kong's the good guy. And there are these creatures who are the bad guys and um and it's a, <laughs> a World War 2 uh fighter pilot who's been hanging out there the whole time not not till our day but till the 70s so it's been 30 years for him or something like that and he um and so we find out and of course it's set up perfectly for a sequel <laughs> as is Logan and a sequel's going to be uh, we are not the original inhabitants of this planet and we don't own it. And the original inhabitants are teed off and there, there's a hollow earth and they're underground and they're gonna want their planet back or something. And I don't know, you know, I mean human beings once you give them fighter planes, helicopters, fifty caliber machine guns, and air to air missiles, um it's hard to believe that there are any creatures we couldn't handle, unless it's something like Independence Day where it's got a force field. But I mean, even if oh, worse comes to worse, you use one of those suitcase nukes that they uh, that we and the Russians had—briefcase nukes. <laughs> There's a point they're walking around with nuclear bombs and briefcases. They could miniaturize them, and. You yeah, know, it would have limited explosive ability, but it should be able to take out, you know, a dinosaur, <laughs> unless it's made out of something that's not uh, not material. But anyway, apparently we're set up, if, you, if if I don't want to say too much more about Skull Island, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but we're set up for a sequel, and maybe it's going to be dragons. And they're going to be really fierce, and for some reason, you know, we can't handle them. I don't know why. I forget the name of the movie, but there's a movie in which it begins where they're excavating in England for, in London for a subway, and they release dragons. Uh, And next thing you know, they're just sort of scattered survivors. Why we couldn't handle the dragons, I don't know, because the Americans come swooping in, and they've mastered these hang glider kites, and so they go up in their hang gliders uh, onto the backs of the dragons, and then they have these spring-loaded bolt guns shoot the dragon in the back of the head. Well, if the dragon is susceptible to that, <laughs> it would have been susceptible to helicopters with 50 caliber machine guns. So I don't know how we let them get out of out of hand like that, but in any case that's you know that's kind of the annoying thing about these kinds of movies you got to handle like you know do they have the or not you know anyway number 4 close encounters of the third kind and one of the things about that movie is um so uh, well, let's see Ebert says this came out the same year as Star Wars in November while Star Wars had has always been released in May. This movie is Spielberg's response to the kind of wonder and awe that was evoked by Kubrick's 2001, and which he then turned around and tried to communicate to the audience of his in his inimitable everyman, lowbrow fashion. Uh, the movie also picks up on 2001's millennial anxieties and amplifies them into a vision that retrieves directly. Uh, back to the book of Revelation. Well, um, in Close Encounters, first of all, the opening scene is incredible, where it's like, uh, oh, of course. (laughs) We just go out every night, and they come zooming by. And so people who have seen... uh, um, Flying saucers hovering over their backyard or whatever have this kind of, of course, attitude, and which is very well communicated in the, in the movie. And so, this idea of being called to the mission, uh, I think, is really great. So, Spielberg is really, you know, his, his genius is this kind of communicating to the uh, everyday ordinary person. Ebert's number five is Apocalypse Now. Coppola's epic retelling of the Odyssey combined with Conrad's Heart of Darkness is a totally unique, absolutely original cinematic vision, again, as with Kubrick and Lucas before him. The mythic structures are consciously intended, as Coppola shows us, in a climax when his camera pans over the shelf of Kurt's books to reveal copies of Jesse Weston's From Ritual to Romance and The Golden Bough. The central myth of Coppola's movie is the death of the old sick king and along with him his entire crumbling kingdom of Iron Age madmen. So... um. It's it's just great that you know a few people have been able to make these great movies, and despite <laughs> despite their struggles, uh, in my book *Visionary Creativity*, I've got a, a piece on uh, just, you know it's just, it's not a, it's been well documented, but I have a couple paragraphs describing uh, Francis Ford Coppola's struggle with the studios to make *The Godfather*. And you know the studio just fought him and tried to destroy the movie at every single step of the way. I remember being out in California when they were making the movie, and one of the things that happened was, as I understand it, I have to get Walter Murch to confirm. He did the sound for the movies, uh, but that their the studio did in one of their one of their prints and the soundtrack had to come uh, from, not from the original but from a print and so you know it's just everything they could have done to do in that movie at the studio did they even had a, a backup director on the on the on the lot you know in case they fired in case they fired a couple in the middle of the making of the movie um alien number 6 This movie is part of the new wave of monster movies inaugurated by Spielberg's Jaws, but unlike all the others, this is pure visual genius. Journeys through outer space by the working class never look so convincing. Yeah, isn't it amazing how they have this kind of oil-smeared old tub that somehow gets across the galaxy, Uh, but it it just, just has this realistic quality. And, again, the, um, the, the real horror of the monster and alien is it's, it's just doing its thing. You know, that's what nature does. You know, at, at this moment, God knows if there's some parasite in one of us. You know, you know <laughs> careful where you go swimming in the tropics because it could be something eating you from the inside. They, they just do that. And number seven, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This movie was a joint creation of Philip Kaufman, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan. Like Star Wars before it, it's a nostalgic trip to the world of pop culture of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So there, yeah, there are all these uh, adventure movies of old, including Captain America comic books from the Golden Age serial. Movies that ended on cliffhangers. I remember cliffhangers. So I was a little kid, I don't know, maybe around third grade or something like that. And there was, uh, I don't know, Wednesday after school, there was a little building on the school property where they'd show a movie, a serial. And I'd go to that and then my mother would pick me up. I, you know, I guess I walked home then. Those are the days when you can walk home. <laughs> Not allowed anymore. But anyway, uh, so I go, and it was a cowboy serial. and, and So I think it was two or, two or three movies, and one of them's a serial that's about 15 minutes. So the hero is, you know, charging along, and there's a cliff, and he goes off the cliff. So, oh, my God, he went off the cliff. <laughs> Got to come back next Wednesday. So I come back next Wednesday... It backs up. He goes off the cliff. The horse tumbles two or three times, lands, and rides off. What was that? (laughs) That's a cliffhanger. Uh, So, anyway, um, uh, yeah, Raiders in the Lost Ark is a cliffhanger in the whole series. So, see if there are any more of those coming. Um, Number eight, Blade Runner. So saw these previews when I went to see uh, Kong Skull Island, and there's a new Blade Runner coming. So let's see how um, what they do with it. Two essential works of science fiction came right out at the start of the 80s, William Gibson's novel Neuromancer and Ridley Scott's movie Blade Runner. Gibson claims to have walked out of Blade Runner, so similar was it to the kind of world that he had been imagining in his novel. And indeed, both narratives are similar in their depiction of a futuristic America governed entirely by huge corporations with a concern for creating Samaricon and the artificial product at the expense of the authentic and the culturally genuine. So it's a movie about these... um, these uh, replicants, right, Um, androids. And the androids are just like humans except super strong and programmed to die in full prime. I have a beautiful uh, quote from it or image from it in my book, uh, Visionary Creativity, where at the end of the movie, uh, Batty, the, the replicant, is dying. He's programmed to die and there's this great quote, I won't have time to look it up before we wrap up here, but, you know, I've seen, I've seen cargo ships on fire off the shoulders of Orion, and that, that terrific quote, maybe I'll read it, I'll bring it next week and read it. But he then lets go of a white dove and says, time to die, because the androids don't have a culture in which to store themselves so when they die, all the memories go, no art, no literature. Uh, Number nine, Videodrome. The philosophy of Marshall McLuhan is here plugged into the Kafkaist paranoid narrative and the result is a disturbing vision of the violation of the body by modern electronic technology and of the mind by degraded and degenerating images. Number 10, the road warrior. Ah, Mel Gibson is finally back. (laughs) If you thought that by the early 80s the Western was dead, you'd be right. Here George Miller uh, reimagines the genre as a post-apocalyptic society in which civilization has vanished, only to be replaced by marauding nomads and sedentary villagers. Number 11, Solaris, 1972, Tarkovsky version. Wow, what an idea, right? This uh, satellite in orbit over this sentient this sentient um, planet that's invading them. And then number 12, Nosferatu, 1979, Herzog version, Werner Herzog's Nesratu is not only the best vampire film ever made, it's also a visionary imagination of how plagues enter towns and destroy whole populations. Well, so that's another hour of visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. We're here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m., unless you're someplace else in the world so you'll be there at some other time. And you can catch all of our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com.